I'm Luke Simmons. And I am Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right. Well, we are back. Welcome to the King and Culture podcast. Seth, it's good to be together again, man. I'm enjoying this. It is. Merry Christmas. Yes. Merry Christmas indeed. Oh, wait, that's he has risen indeed. But Mary, I, I can go with Merry Christmas indeed. That was a pretty churchy joke. That was pretty good. For that was you. very churchy. Yeah, I yeah. like it. Sorry about that. Anyway, uh, but yeah, we're glad that you're listening. I don't know if this is your first time with us or if you're a regular listener, but if you are new, what we're trying to do in this podcast, as we said, is critique the hell out of culture. We kind of see that there are hellish elements and heavenly elements in the world. And, uh, and in us as followers of Jesus. And so this is not a podcast where we're just trying to throw shade at all the kind of bad stuff out there, but really trying to uh, even understand ourselves and understand our the ways that we kind of fall into ungodly and unbiblical patterns. Um, also, I think it's just kind of a fun chance to do some deep dives into some interesting aspects of theology and the scriptures that maybe we don't always talk about on a Sunday morning or something. So that's kind of what we're doing today. Absolutely. It's been a, a fun time even just reading and rereading some of the Christmas stories and looking at the offense of them and the way they confront the first century readers and even the way they confront us in the here and now. And what I want to talk about today is actually rooted in the story that I keep coming back to as I think through uh, Christmas time. And it's a story of Herod. So Herod is this dictator king who was overseeing a variety of places and spaces. Uh, when Jesus was born, and I want to talk about the way that he approaches the law and the way he creates law and the way that leader in that first century creates law, mm. and even just something I've been noticing in this text about earthly rulers and humanly rulers in contrast to God and God's law, because we, we have experienced a lot of laws, like that's, you know, Arizona Revised Statutes are, you know, pages and pages and pages and pages long. You add that to United States law, it's pages and pages and pages long. We even have a church have talked about what does it look like to submit to the government? It's like, well, which government, which law? Because their intention and contrast all the time. Well, and it feels like, you know, there's always, we're always living in a, you know, under laws and that, you know, that's always kind of part of our reality, but especially the last couple of years where it's felt like whether they're laws or just decisions or governmental edicts or whatever it is, it's just more and more in your face about kind of like, was well, that a good, is that a good one? Is that a, what process did that follow? What is that law? And, and I think for a lot of us, we find ourselves even in kind of more of a sense of tension. Like we, we want to believe that the rule of law is good and that it's, you know, a good thing. And, and yet we find ourselves going, what is, unless it's one I don't like. Yeah. And then we want to bump up against it. And so then we encounter all these places in the Bible where we hear about God's law and God's expectations. And I, it probably confuses us. You know, maybe I'm getting ahead of things, but. Well, especially when I was in adolescence and in the early in my early 20s trying to think through submitting to god's law just felt like an icky phrase sure this idea of coming up under something that i didn't feel like i necessarily agreed with or was on board with but you know you have to do it because i'd find that i would project my understanding of like the bureaucratic process of united states law and i'd project that onto god and even just kind of that the way that we're just like we think about with our word father you know, we all have this image that pops from mind and father. And if we have good fathers, thinking about God as father is a little easier. You have a bad father, thinking about God as father is a little less good. But you think about in world history across the globe, how many like really healthy nation states with laws that really benefited all the citizens existed, but yet all these people have had to come to grips with the idea of God's law or God's instruction. And 
that can also be conflating. How do I emotionally receive or experience God's law? Do I experience it as blessing or as a curse or as oppressive or as this means of me doing something to get something from God? And so that's a complicated emotional process. And so you've been reading about Herod and reading about, you know, Herod's particularly his decision to uh, wipe out all the, you know, Jewish babies under two years old and going, okay, that's an example of a law. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like I think about uh, in Herod where it says uh, when this is Matthew two, verse three, when King, when Herod, the King heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with them and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he's, he hears about another King and he gets insecure about it. He feels threatened by this infant being born. And so he summons the wise men and secretly sends them on this mission to go and do this thing. And eventually he plans on uh, killing all the people. So in, in Matthew 2, verse 16, we see, Then Herod, when he saw he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in that region and two years older, two years old or younger or under. And so what you see is this like insecurity-driven power holding on to attempt. So this is legal. Like Herod does a legal thing. The king can issue edicts and make laws. And so whether something is just or not does not means something is a law or not. St. Augustine even said an unjust law is no law, which is something that whenever I jaywalk, I repeat to the people I'm with. <laughs> <laughs> I was downtown Phoenix the other day going to a Suns game, and I jaywalked. And someone asked me, is this is this legal? And I said an unjust law is no law. So St. <laughs> Augustine, which did not apply, but it ended the conversation, so I can do what I want. But you think about so so hold on so in in Augustine so again I'm not familiar with that quote or the whole line of reasoning kind of behind it but the, an unjust law is no law but but this is an unjust law yes. that Herod's making but it is the law I mean it is what happens yeah and so when when Augustine says an unjust law is no law he means to the Christian who fears God when the law is commanding injustice you okay. just don't do it. So gotcha. this comes back to the Acts 5, you know, I'd better to obey God than man. Gotcha. And so when a law is commanding or, or, or creating opportunity for injustice, Christians don't find loopholes uh, to, you know, loopholes in God's law in order to submit to man's law. They find loopholes in man's law or exploit it or just straight up disobey God's law in order to in, in sort of exploit man's law in order to obey God's law, which, okay. is, which is the idea there. But a lot of it we think about with God's law towards us and how we think and feel about it is pretty complicated. Like you hear the term legalism thrown around all the time. Sure. What is legalism? And, you know, if, well, if you read the new Testament, you know, especially certain parts of Galatians or Romans. Yeah. You're not walking away going, Oh, you know what? You know, what's awesome is God's law. Mm -hmm. Like, and yet I think, I mean, I think the apostle Paul would have very much said that he appreciated and valued God's law, but, but you, the thrust of it sort of, and especially if you've heard any kind of, you know, preaching from a New Testament church, you know, we're going like, eh, law, icky, bad. Don't trust it, right? You don't live by the law, live by grace. Yes. And so, yeah, I mean, if you go, okay, our, our association based on our experiences in the world of law is not great. And then even our associations based off of some of the New Testament makes us go, eh, law, eh, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, I mean, I can just kind of see this uh, wall of suspicion building up around our kind of understanding of the law. And so what I want to talk about is three approaches to law, three uses of the law, and three types of laws. Okay. That will help us wrap our mind around 
God's law and so and the way it's going to shape things. And so first I want to talk about what historically has been called the three uses of the law and how, especially in the Reformed tradition, the third use of the law is kind of what's different or distinct. And give us even just the law. What is the law? So like is, when theologians are talking about the law. Well, this is what's what are hard we talking about? is there's not really a the law. Usage determines meaning all the time. So sometimes when the New Testament's talking about the law, they're referring to the first five books of Moses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That could be called the law, so those five books. Mm-hmm. In, um, or it could be called the Pentateuch. That is the law. Uh, and another way of thinking about that is the word Torah, which means instruction. And so it's not even like uh, like this jurisdictional thing, but it's like God's teaching to us. So the law would include the creation account. The law would include... Uh, the record of God's salvation. So it's the instruction or the teaching. It's like the law of history, I guess you could say. Like yep. this is the okay. tr- this is the authoritative history. So a lot of times when Paul's talking about the law, so that's the that's the main one of the main uses of the word law is first five books of the Old Testament. Sometimes too, when we see the word the law, we're talking about explicitly the mos- the uh, Mosaic covenant, which is the the instruction given to Moses to bind the consciences of Israel and to shape them into a faithful people that were supposed to like prepare the way of the coming Christ. And so a lot of the negative uses of the word law we get from Paul in the New Testament, talking about like, we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. What he's talking about is the Mosaic covenant versus the new covenant. Is there ever any um, talking about the law in a more general way of going like the law as a kind of system of rule keeping or a law? Like I'm thinking about Jesus going, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you, what he, what Jesus is reacting to there in the Sermon on the Mount is this kind of, it's the Mosaic law plus. Yeah. It would be considered like the rabbinic tradition yeah. of the application of the law. So it would be. So in Paul's, and again, Paul's using it different ways in different texts probably, but is that part of the thinking as well? Yeah. There's, there's the law at, insofar as it's passed on tradition within the Jewish people. So that would be like the Mosaic covenant with some extra stuff. Okay. Right. It would be the details being applied beyond the scope of scripture. So even when Jesus says, you've heard it said by saying to you, he's never contradicting Moses. He's contradicting how these people have understood and applied Moses. Right. So Jesus isn't abolishing or tossing out Moses. He's abolishing or tossing out the junk they added to Moses. Okay. So when we're talking, cause we haven't even gotten to your three sets of three yet. So, but the first one was the three uses of the law. So what were you going to, yeah. So when you're saying the three uses of the law, what 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 is the law in in this conversation? Uh, each use is different ways we use the word the law. Oh, okay. So well, we're kind of getting there. I'm so, getting ahead of us. Yeah. So, Sorry. So the fourth way that we understand the word law here would be ways that I would like us to use it at Gateway most frequently, which is like God's decree to us about how to best live in his world. More like the instruction. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's real Torah, it's instruction, it's shaping. This is fatherly uh, guidance and counsel. It's authoritative and it's binding and it's rebellion to go against it. So it's not just like wise sayings that help us, but it's also because the instruction is coming from the king of the universe. It does have legal weight to it, but it's not just like arbitrary, dec- like revised statutes, et cetera, et cetera. So when we think about the threefold use of the law, this is like really kind of getting into church history, the way that people talked about the way the law is to function in our hearts and our minds as Christians. Okay. And so there's kind of three things the law is supposed to do. So the first function of the law, 
this comes from Augustine, is how the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it so that we know to help, so that we know to ask for the help of grace. Mm. So one of the first functions of the law is that it breaks us. Mm. We, we realize we can't do it. Over time, our self-righteousness is eroded and crushed and our self-confidence in our ability to please God apart from God's grace is crushed. So like the first use of the law really is to crush us. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. I think John Bunyan said that. That sounds great. Yeah, run, John, run. That's the law. The law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Absolutely. Yes. So whenever one of the things we can do when we're feeling particularly arrogant or self-righteous or better than others is to go to the law to learn how short we've really fallen and to learn how far our hearts are from God's design and to, to be crushed to have our wills broken. And I mean that positively, like that we would learn that we need grace. So that's the first function of the law is to teach us of our need for grace. Is that, um, this is a, maybe a bit of a rabbit trail, but I've heard some people understand the Sermon on the Mount almost exclusively in those terms. Yes. As though Jesus is only kind of saying, hey, you heard it said, don't murder. But I'm telling you, if you even are angry with someone, you've already committed murder. Let me, like, let me ratchet it up so high that in the end of this sermon, you're going to go, never mind, I can't do it. Jesus, yeah. save me. Um, and I think, I think there's an element of that going on in that just that is the reality of, of the law. The, the reality of God's expectations are that they will crush you. Not even necessarily that they should, but that they will. But I also think what Jesus is doing there is per, per painting more of a positive vision for here's what life does look like under the, under the appropriate you know, joyful reign of God. It does look like this. Yeah, and I and I think what we're going to see too is that if you reduce the law to any one of these three, you have some serious errors. Yeah. So if you reduce, if you eliminate the first function of the law to crush us, the law you end up being pretty much a legalist who thinks they're awesome. Huh. You go. The law is something I read to remind me of how awesome I am, <laughs> yeah. and to remind me of why I'm better than the nations, and to remind me of why I'm better than those Gentiles, and to remind me of why I'm better than unbelievers. And it's actually. Uh, you have to be pretty much deep in lies to yourself to read it that way. You know, if you read the law and you go like, this is affirming, right? You're just dishonest and you haven't looked in the mirror in a while and you haven't talked to someone about your or, or your understanding of the law is just so thin. Yeah. That you don't really understand all that God really is trying to say about who he is and what he expects. Yeah. So, so the first one is to crush us, crush us. The second one is to uh, make us civilized. So, or to restrain us. This comes from like Romans 13, how the government is meant to punish what's evil and praise what's good. And this idea that there are things that we would do, but because they are illegal, we don't do them. And that makes society a better place. Yep. Right. So it's, it's restraining evil for the sake of the common good. This is one of the main functions of American law or Arizona's law is this is really the only real reason we do it. You know, Arizona revised statutes don't exist to crush us and they don't exist to form us in the image of God, but they do. They're trying to restrain evil. And so Mm -hmm. this is one of the overlaps between parts of God's law and parts of common law now or not common law, uh, modern law is this idea that this helps society be a better place when we praise what's good and we punish what's evil. Um, Murderers may commit less murder because murder is illegal. Thieves may steal less because thievery is illegal. Adulterers may commit less adultery. I mean, adultery is not illegal, but in Israel. Yeah. Well, without the kind of common virtue, 
that comes yeah. through obeying just the everyday laws. I mean, this place would be unlivable, right? It's the it's those purge movies where you yeah. know all the rules are off, and here we go, you know. And that's one of the things too that I think as I'm pretty politically conservative is that I do think that laws create norms that shape people's morals to some degree, right? What is what is legal is understood as normative and allowed. And so whether something is, so like this, in this sense, all laws legislate morality without exception. All laws do, right? Speed limits at some point, you know, if someone was going 48 and 45, you wouldn't necessarily call it immoral. But if someone was going 96 and 45, you would probably call it immoral because you're risking life uh, for, for joy or for, like you're you're yeah. now gambling with someone else's well-being right. and it becomes like selfish, which would be considered immoral. And so even most basic laws like speed limits, at some point we see them as moral laws, not just as helping us function. They're not just oil on the on society like to keep the gears going, but they actually create moral standards. Okay. And then so then the third use of the law, which this is one of the main ones that we see in the reform tradition emphasized on a regular basis, is it's to guide us into the good and to shape us into people that reflect God's heart. So this would be called like uh, the the moral uh, shaping structure, that the law reveals to us God's heart, the law reveals to us what God loves, the law reveals to us what God hates. And as people who love God, not people who are trying to earn something from God, people who love God, we go, okay, because I love God, I want to function in a way that's going to honor him and do the best I can. So the third loose of the law would be called like the positive use. Mm-hmm. Or the moral use. When a big place like where I would see this is, um, you know, I remember we preached through Exodus a few years ago, and we we made the point that God gave the Ten Commandments after He'd already rescued His people. Yes, right. He didn't say, "All right, you're in Egypt. Here's these Ten Commandments. If you do these, then I'll let you out of here." But He sets them free. He saves them. He rescues. He redeems them. And then He says, "Now go live like this. This is this is the way to flourish. This is the way to enjoy life." To to the fullest, you know, go follow this way. Yeah, and so to, to make these three things all alliterations and C's, the first one crushes us, the second one civilizes us, and the third one creates us. Mm. That it's it's helping us live into this new creation life and saying, here's the best way to live for your sake, for the sake of your neighbors, and for the love of God and love of neighbor. Here's, like, so the law is actually functioning to create in us new habits, patterns, affections, desires. And so all three of those uses are important when we consider God's law because it it actually keeps us balanced that if you remove any one of those. So if you remove the first one, you know, you're going to be, uh, if you, the crushing this, you're going to become self-righteous. If you move the second one, you're going to just become anarchist. And if you move the third one, you're going to be antinomian or you're going to be licentious, meaning I'm going to do whatever I want. And I'm going to kind of say, God loves me. So sin may abound. Yeah. That, that whole thought process. Hmm. So those three uses I think are helpful in terms of like the way they, shape Christians in the way they shape society in an ideal way. And how often they break into society is really waxes and wanes from civilization to civilization. Now, a little while ago you said, but there's kind of a fourth approach that you hope for the people of Redemption Gateway. Is it, that, but it sounded a lot like the third one. Yeah. The, when I talk about like the, that was kind of responding to your prior question. Okay. Like when I think about the word law, meaning like, God's instruction to us mm-hmm. to shape us and help us live. In one sense, if you understand law as instruction, you get all of them mm. because law as instruction means like, then I try to follow God's instruction and I'm crushed. But if the society tries to follow God's instructions, it's a little more civilized. And if 
we as Christians try to follow God's instruction, then we're living into new creation life and we're, yeah. we're putting off the old and putting on the new. Okay. And so then one of the next questions you get when it comes to law is, well, what about all these random laws in the Old Testament? Sure. Why do we, how do we, what do we do with them? How do we consider them? How do we make sense of them? How do we know which ones bind and which ones don't nowadays? Yeah, well, and this this comes up even more frequently in these last number of years as, uh, you know, people look at especially the laws related to sexuality in Leviticus, which feel like they're awfully close to laws prohibiting the eating of shellfish and uh, the blending of different fabrics, right? If you're wearing some sort of, you know, cotton polyester blend shirt, like that seems to be prohibited by Leviticus. So it does feel like, gosh, that some of these, uh, okay, like it feels a little random. So yeah, help us understand that. So the Westminster Confession of Faith helps us, gives us categories for these three uses of the law. And again, all three of these uses of the law are to some degree revealing to us God's character and shaping and shaping his people. But how exactly they translate to the new covenant is, is the big question. And so these three big buckets help us look at the different types of laws we see in the Old Testament. So the first one we see would be called the ceremonial laws. So the, now we're looking at different kinds of laws. Yes, kind, uses, types of laws. Now within, we're looking at types or kinds. Okay. Yeah, types or kinds. And what, what I'm going to argue is that two of these, or all three of these reveal to us some aspect of God's character, but only one of them is morally binding on Christians nowadays. Okay. So the first one you said was ceremonial. Ceremonial laws. So these have to do with instructions regarding being like having access to God in the temple. Right, so these hand washing ceremonies, clean versus unclean, this type of way of processing through things, um, Sabbath keeping, uh, even even uh, certain dietary laws. These things are like being ceremonially clean or ceremonially. The different unclean. sacrificial laws would be part of that. Uh, yes, yeah, and so the way that these function and the way that these roll together, and uh, when we think about ideas like shellfish has to do with being ceremonially clean or unclean. Like if you have like two types of fibers, don't weave together two different types of um, uh, fiber to make a cloth. Don't sew two seeds together to make these things. And so this ceremonial and and some of those actually overlap with civil laws shape to us some of like the unique identity of the people of God in contrast with the, uh, the unique identity of the people of Israel in contrast with, with the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation we see in the New Testament. And so... These ceremonial laws are one of the things that I think were designed to protect and preserve Israel and help them maintain a distinct ethnic identity as they look forward to the time when the Messiah would come and make them a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so even this idea of don't eat shellfish, well, shellfish were these kind of bottom feeders, uh, which kind of did shameful, like they did the shame, they ate and did the shameful things. And like, okay, Israel doesn't eat and do the shameful things, like the nations eat and do the shameful things. And so it's not really about the shellfish themselves being immoral, but it's about like the image and the representation of these laws. So these laws are even meant to be pictures and instructions to the people of God, helping them know like, hey, we don't do the shameful bottom feederish stuff. Like even now, if you called someone a bottom feeder, <laughs> right? it's not, not a okay. praise, but yeah, you know, sure. carp and shellfish, these things are bottom feeder animals. They're kind of, same with pigs. Pigs are bottom feeders. You know, they, they eat off the ground and not in like fields, but in like muck and nasty. And mm -hmm. they, they do that. And so this idea of ruling out the bottom feeders, hey, we don't eat bottom feeders, was a way of going, we're called to purity and higher things. We're made in the image of God. There's dignity and respect. And so we don't eat the things that eat the 
So what things. you're saying is, you know, when I'm in my Bible in a year plan and I'm somewhere in March and I'm slugging through Leviticus and I'm going, golly, eat yes. this animal, don't eat that animal. How many hooves did they have? I don't know. Like, and it just feels like God's just doing coin flips on all this stuff. Like, yeah. well, okay, these guys are out. Oh, these guys are in. Oh, these guys are. What you're saying is a lot of that really is God trying to communicate. Here's how I want you, Israel, to be a contrast community. You're going to be different than all the other nations. You're going to stand out among all the other nations. But that's a lot of what's going on there in that ceremonial law. Yeah, and so you think about Israel. So picture a mother and her daughter, and they're making clothes in ninth century Israel, right? And they're going, hey, we have this material, we have this material. And the mother goes, honey, we don't mix these materials. And the daughter goes like, why? But then it would... But well, we have the two materials. And the mother says to the daughter, well, the nations around us are, uh, what's the, not monotheists, they're polytheists. Mm-hmm. They're, they're polytheists. They have multiple gods. And so they can have. And they mix it all together. And they mix it all together. And so they can have polyfibrous clothes. Mm. But even our shirts are going to remind us of monotheism, that there's one God. Right. So it's yeah. so like these, these like were meant to be these passing on the faith to next generation teaching tools. Mom, why can't we eat the pig? Well, the nations eat pigs. Yeah. Because they don't know who they are. They don't know that they're image bearers of the one God. And so that's, so this idea of like ceremonial teaching tools, laws were designed to like give ways of reinstructing. And so it's teaching us something about God's heart, but it's not morally binding on us today. We actually see this in Colossians too. And so, even like you think about, hey, mom, why don't we work on Saturdays? It's like, well, because the Lord gives us a day off. Mm-hmm. He brought us out of the land of Egypt. Other nations work tirelessly because their God isn't their gods aren't kind to them. Their gods work them. Their gods treat them as slaves. But our God treats us as sons and daughters, not as slaves. So yeah. this is Colossians 2, 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regards to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. Those are ceremonial laws, festivals, new moon, Sabbaths. In, including in that s- some of those things would be the dietary laws. These are shadows of the things to come, but the real substance is Christ. Mm. Meaning all these laws were shadows, but the real thing was Christ. That eventually the real teaching tool would not be the clothes we wear or the food we eat, but it would be uh, the crosses we bear and the, the Christ. Yeah, your, your true holiness becomes Jesus. Yeah, well, your ma- true set-apartness becomes Jesus. Your true access to God becomes Jesus. Yeah, what makes you distinct from the nations is the blood of Jesus, yeah. not these ceremonies. And so the ceremonies served a purpose, mm-hmm. which is to point us forward to Christ, and now they've served their purpose, so they're gone. Yeah, they've been fulfilled. They have been fulfilled. And they're fulfilled in Christ, and so it's not like they're just stupid and dumb, but they actually help us see the heart of Christ preparing a people for yeah, Israel. Yeah, that, that's important. I, I think sometimes we think of it in a way like Jesus overthrew it. Yeah. And it'd be better to say, no, Jesus fulfilled it. It's complete. Yeah. They were sh- they were real shadows of the real thing, which is Jesus. But now that Jesus is here, we don't need those anymore. Yeah. And so when Paul says we're no longer under the law, that's what he's re- referencing, is that mosaic instruction about how to preserve a clear identity of, of God's people until the Christ comes. We're no longer in that because Christ has come. And so the shadows are worthless now compared to the substance, the real thing we have, which is Christ. And so even some of the civil laws and the ceremonial laws uh, do really blend together because they're about shaping a distinct people who would be a light to the nation. So nations. civil is the second kind or the second type. Yeah, so the first one was ceremonial. ceremonial. Second one is civil. This is God ruling Israel as a distinct political entity 
so it's a nation state among nation states, a people among peoples. And so these had to do with like taxation and regulation and systems of providing for the poor and these types of things that the United States government should not read Isaiah and learn how to like go straight application to law. The, the God shaping a distinct people within whom we're going to do certain things a certain way does still reveal to us God's heart. Like I think about one of the texts that I read uh, in our faith in a pandemic sermon about the parapet, mm-hmm. you know, it's we're talking about when building a house, build a parapet on top of the house. And you're going like, what does that have to do with anything? Also it's a parapet, but a parapet is like <laughs> a parapet's a railing around the top of your roof. Yeah. And so the par- roof, railing around the top of the roof. So do I think, so Redemption Gateway right now has a ch- is a church, a building, and we don't have a parapet around the roof, right? <gasps> yeah. <laughs> Are we breaking God's law? Right. You know, um, none of our houses probably have parapets on the roof. Are we breaking God's law, right? Um, but the, the function of that is God is going, hey, design your spaces in such a way that uh, idiots who fall asleep don't kill themselves. Yeah, because people lived and slept and spent a lot more time on their roofs than we do. Yeah, so it's consider the fool when making your buildings. Yeah. That's like the function of the application to it nowadays. And so that's revealing to us something about God's heart, that God does not want us to design society in such a way that only the smartest and most well-off and most healthy people flourish. Yeah. What about this, though? Um, so I know, you know, a lot of people will appeal to the civil law of the Old Testament, especially related to the heart for that God has for the sojourner and the immigrant and the foreigner. Um, you know, the laws that relate to, you know, don't harvest your, your field all the way up to the edge, but leave kind of an edge for the poor so that they can come by and glean. There seem to be these kinds of civil laws that people will appeal to now. Say, in light of those things, we should have in the United States a more welcoming approach to immigration because that's God's heart for it in the civil Old Testament law. Or we should have more of some of these social safety nets in order to take care of the poor or, you know, whatever that is. So when people appeal that way, is your sense that, like, is that okay or is that not okay? How much, like, if it's not one-to-one, right, we're not under the, we're not a theocracy. We're not under the civil law as a country of the Old Testament. Um, But as God's people who get some sense of God's heart, you know, build a parapet. Don't harvest your field all the way. Welcome the foreigner. How much should that maybe influence our our approach where we, the people of the United States, who kind of are the government, uh, how much should that shape our thinking? Well, the, the question to me there is not how does this particular law apply to United States law, but the question is if this law reveals God's heart and we're the carriers of God's heart and we are participating in democracy, then it should be coming with us. Hmm. Like we, it, so... God having all these laws about protecting the vulnerable and the sojourners, the widows, the orphans, that teaches us certainly that God cares about those groups of people and he cares that, and he understands that they probably need disproportionate attention because society does not benefit them or play to them or, or serve them in certain ways. And so, you know, there's no laws about um, protecting the non-vulnerable people because they tend to not need to be protected. It, sure. does, it does say don't show partiality against them, you know, but yeah. You don't need laws about protecting the emperor from poverty because that's not it's a non <laughs> right. it's a non situation, right? Sure. That's not really a deal. And so, as Christians, especially like one, we need to understand that like Amer- United States government is not in covenant with God Most High. We, we are not the second coming of Israel. The church is the people of God, Israel, Abraham's descendants, Abraham's people of faith. And mm-hmm. so, 
it should certainly affect the way that we conduct ourselves as Christians, both in our private lives, but also in our public lives. We don't want to have this huge gap between what we privately believe about sojourners and then what we publicly do about it, especially if we're a government by the people for the people and if we're the people and part of our heart is shaped by God's heart as revealed in the Old Testament, then we definitely need to do that. Mm-hmm. What I want to be slow to do is say um, we're not bound by the particularities of those laws, but I do think we are under the moral weight of what those laws reveal to us about God's heart for peoples. Mm-hmm. And so that brings us to the third type of law, which would be the moral laws or the creational laws, like the things that are revealing to us that God writes these just like he creates the law of gravity, like it's in the fabric of creation. There's also moral laws that he wove into the fabric of creation that shape and govern and decide the best and primary means of the way that humans interact and the way that they're called to be and the way they flourish and the way they um, run, walk, sit, and stand among other peoples. And so these have, like the Ten Commandments reveal moral laws. They're not just timely for then. Uh, The laws about sexuality, these things that are especially rooted in creation and reiterated by Jesus in the New Testament. So one of the ways you can see if something is a moral law, is it rooted in creation, and is it reiterated by Jesus in the New Testament? Well, I'm glad you said that, because I was going to ask you, like, you know, it's not like they go, all right, and here are the ceremonial laws. Oh, sweet. Now I know what I can not worry about. Here are the civil laws. Oh, now here are the moral. Like, they all feel pretty mixed up together. So, so you're saying that one of the ways we can tell, okay, this one's actually a moral law is it's reiterated in the New Testament. Yeah, it's it's rooted in creation, reiterated in the New Testament. And and this is one of the things that's hard about the way this thing breaks down is all of these laws reveal to us parts of God's heart, his character, and his justice. Yeah, they're not none of them are just like willy-nilly. They're yeah. all trying to say something. Yeah, they're about all them. showing us something about God. However, the moral laws are the ones that I think we are directly required to command as they are or we're directly required to submit to as they're written. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's like, uh, does that really apply? It's like it's right yeah. there. You know, marriage, like sexuality is reserved between a man and a woman in the covenant marriage. It's just as it is. Uh, and so, like, the way that it plays out and the way that it functions within societies is a different question. But the way it functions for us as individuals and as churches underneath the authority of God is important, and we must submit to it. And so, uh, again, using these three Cs, we have ceremonial law, civil law, and we have creational law or the moral law which it, all those things reveal to us God's character, but the, the creational or moral laws are the ones that I think are binding on Christians and our conscience now. So specifically as it relates to, because the place where I said this does come up a lot is related to laws about sexuality. Yes. Where people will go, well, gosh, that's right in there with all the ceremonial stuff. Like maybe that's just ceremonial. And what you're saying is no, because sexuality is rooted in God's creation, which we've talked a lot about at different points in this podcast. And it's reiterated by the approach to sexuality that Jesus and the other New Testament writers give. Yes. Yeah, whereas, again, going back to, like, the the two types of fabric on your clothes thing, like, that served a clear purpose, that, that and that purpose is fulfilled. Yeah. And so it's no longer an issue for Christians to wear polyester unless it's, like, they have a skin irritation. <laughs> you know? Sure. Uh, we don't need to wear 100% cotton only only stuff. And part of that's because we're no longer pointing towards the future coming of the Messiah who's going to make us a, a people of one tribe, uh, of multiple tribes in every tongue, every nation. Like, that's already happening. Mm-hmm. And so we're now, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and so we don't need to point towards this 
different reality. And so even like the instruction of the laws themselves were designed to pass away when the Messiah would come. And so they have. And so that's the reasons why it's not sin to eat uh, lobster, shrimp or lobster, but it still is to have sex with someone of the same biological sex. It's because one of those violates creation, but one of those violates ceremony. Mm. And that's the difference. That's helpful. Through that. Which gets to like the, the last piece here um, is our like, like our heart's approaches to the law and the way that we seek to go towards it. And the three things I see here are legalism, licentiousness, and lordship. Mm. And this changes the way that we approach the law based on our understanding of grace and the way that we look towards things, the way that we understand things. And so legalism would be using the law as justification, meaning the way that I get right with God and the way that I prove myself to myself is by obeying the law. And so this would be like taking the law as means of uh, earning or means of demonstrating righteousness or means of proving righteousness. So when we talk about legalism, we're not talking about submitting to God's law because everyone should be submitting to God's law. Mm -hmm. But legalism is submitting to God's law in order to get something from God or to um, ascertain some position or standing or legalism can even be resolved in like a heart of judgmentalism and those types of things. So that's legalism. Right? Yeah. And when legalism, it feels like there's a kind of hard legalism that says like explicitly do this, do this, do this, do this, and you'll be saved. Yes. And then there's the kind of soft legalism that kind of more is more experienced in a culture, especially in a church that someone might go, ah, that was a kind of legalistic environment where everyone would technically say that you're right with God by believing in Jesus but it was kind of this feeling of, but you're not right with us unless you do this and this and this and avoid these and this and that. And uh, and so that's kind of a, you know, so something can be not technically legalistic and yet still be an environment that feels pretty legalistic. Yeah. Another way people talk about legalism in that sense is like adding things to God's law. Yeah. It's like, oh, and also no smoking cigarettes. Oh, and also no drinking whiskey. Oh, and also... Uh, women staying at home and not working. Oh, and also, oh, it's all these oh and also's, oh and also's. Again, yeah. the, the community is shaping norms that they decide are better in order to be accepted by the community. So when the community has higher standards for acceptance than God does, that's another way of describing yeah. a community as legalistic. But it's almost always in the culture. Whenever someone comes to our church and says, oh, that past, my past church was legalistic, almost never are they describing a confessed doctrine of do good stuff and God will love you. Sure. They're, which somehow we internalize that sometimes because I think that's part of being a young Christian is like you for the first time have to deal with the weight of God's authority. You're like, oh, dang, I don't want to make him mad. And so sometimes like in your heart you can become legalistic even though you've never been taught to be legalistic. Well, and I think the legal legalism really does have kind of a vertical and a horizontal dimension, right? Yeah. There's like if I do this, then God will accept me. But if I do this, then then y'all will accept me. I think that's what Paul is actually confronting in Peter in Galatians 2. Yes. Right, where Peter had been eating with the Gentiles, and now he's withdrawn because these Judaizers you know, from Jerusalem have showed up and said, hey, you really shouldn't be eating with those people. And so now he's withdrawn from them, which is his way of, which is what Paul's saying is, hey, you, you're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel because you're acting like these people aren't okay with you, and they are okay with you because they've trusted Jesus. Absolutely. It's that like socialization deal. Yeah. And so that's, I think at Gateway, we always have this threat of this. Like, I don't, I think we're decades and generations away from being threatened with like, 
legalistic doctrine, but I think legalistic culture is always right around the corner. Well, I think sometimes people feel this when they hear us talk about grace and, hey, there's nothing you can do uh, to make God love you more, nothing you can do to make him love you less. Like, you have nothing to prove, no one to impress, just trust in Jesus, uh, but also obey him. <laughs> Starts to go, like, wait, 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 is that legalism? And I think that's the what we're going to talk about. The third category is, is lordship. So you have legalism, and then you have license or antinomianism. T- tell us about that. Yeah, licentiousness is basically taking Jesus as Savior but not taking him as Lord. Mm. It's going, I'll take his grace, but I won't take his truth. It's saying, I really know that he accepts, accepts me and loves me, but I have this blank check called do whatever I want, and I'm basically going to not wrestle with the moral authority of God over me. I'm going to presume on his grace, which is a dangerous thing to do. And I'm going to uh, really kind of push back. A lot of times we become licentious when we have been around legalism and you see licentiousness and you go, well, you can't earn God's approval. So I guess I'll just stop trying to obey God and you just do whatever you want. And this is like, I talked to some folks who are, um, will say things like, I know that I'm saved. Um, and, but I just don't really want to inch, anything to do with growing in my faith or following Jesus or even like the l- words like repent feel icky. Uh, the idea of like stopping something that I find pleasure in because God has told me it's not his will for my life is just like silly. And it's like dismissed as, Oh, you, you don't take that that seriously. Do you, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and well, and we smoke screen it. Well, that was written a long time ago and, doesn't really apply and come on man i was just blown off steam or it's really not and we minimize or we we move away from god's teaching and so license is kind of like you know 007 is licensed to kill you know licentiousness is you have a license to sin meaning yeah uh, well and even in this it's like there are some people who would like be more explicit about it like hey man free grace dude do what i want but then you'd also have you know kind of thing where it's like you know, I think Jerry Bridges had the book Respectable Sins. Yeah. He's going, here are these sins we don't address, we don't talk about, we don't deal with, because eh, they're not that bad, and they're just kind of respectable sins. And, and that is a kind of licentiousness Yeah, to go, you know, well, in this area, eh, you know, boys will be boys, and you know. And so I think it's, whether it's legalism or licentiousness, all of us who are following Jesus are tempted to fall off that horse, you know. And my guess is that at any moment in time, our hearts are in one of those two places. Like it's rare for me that I'm really getting grace and law well in the exact moment. Like there's yeah. there's always this like seed of I can do what I want or I'm earning something from God that I'm trying to squish down mm-hmm. all the time. Yep. Which goes to the third idea, the third category, which is lordship, which is that Jesus is um, the Lord, which lords and kings have kingdoms and lordships. And so there's laws that are associated with that authority in that place, you know, kings have kingdoms, kingdoms have rules or laws that shape them. And so we want to be in the kingdom. We want to be under the king's law, the king's laws for our good. That king is really gracious. That king is kind. That king is patient. His kindness leads us to repentance. And so being under like the lordship of Jesus, uh, I think is a way of personalizing. Like when I like the language of lordship because it personalizes the law. It's like, mm-hmm. it's not just the, cause the law can feel impersonal and abstract like this arbitrary set of rules out there like gravity. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I think about the Lordship of Jesus and he gives me law, then I'm thinking about, I like him, right? Even I think about some of the, 
it's pretty predictable based on who comes out with which law when that if, if you trust or like the leader, you're more likely to want to follow the law. Sure. You know, whether you like Ducey or not is a pretty, uh, pretty well predicts how you responded to his mandates and decrees. Yeah. You know, and whether you like Biden or not pretty well predicts whether you like it. And so it's pretty hard to disassociate the person from the law, which is like why politics can feel so personal all the time. But like, man, if you really know the person Jesus and you're going like, that's the guy, that's the man who's writing this law. Well, in that case, even if I don't get it, I'm in. Yeah. I don't have to fully understand it to know that I, to understand that it's good for me. Mm. I don't have to fully wrap my mind around it to know that my mind will be served by coming up under this. That yeah. It's interesting. I, I heard somebody once, I, I forget where this was, but someone said, if you could summarize Christianity in one sentence, what would it be? And they said, well, Jesus is Lord. It's like, well, wait, but it, that, but that sounds like, maybe more legalistic. And they said, wait, 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 Jesus is Lord. Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus means God saves. And, and so it's the one who saves. It's the one who saves by grace. It's the one who moves into the neighborhood. It's the one who comes near. It's the one who dies for your sins. He's the one who's Lord. Yeah, And, and it, so I go, okay, I can, I can live with that. I can live with that. If I have to boil it down to three words to express Christianity, I go, yeah, Jesus is Lord. I can live with that. Well, and, it, and that's good news because Jesus being Lord means that the Herods of the world are not. Yeah. And that's where Christmas gets confronting. And that's where uh, you see Christianity undermining the systems and powers and laws of human-made institutions. Is that with the confession, Jesus is Lord, you're saying Caesar is not Lord. Herod is not Lord. These oppressive, insecure dictators who think that they can create moral laws out of thin air based on their preferences or based on the spirit of the age or based on public opinion, they're not Lord either. And yep. so public opinion is also not Lord. And so I don't have to fear being on the quote wrong side of history. Like in, and I'm certain that the people in Herod's day were like, Oh no, uh, the King Herod is in a bad mood, which means things are gonna be bad for us. And yeah, to be able to say like Jesus is Lord would be good news. And because his law is more consistent. His law is not rooted in security and power grabbing. His law is rooted in our flourishing and our well-being. And so he's not designing laws to try to just entrap or um, keep us down. But he's creating laws that are meant to help us be who we're called to be. They, they build us up. They, they set us free. And they enable us to live as we we're supposed to live. And so this is why freedom in the Christian conscience is not freedom from the law but it's freedom within the law because the law is grace. I mean, the law is a blessing. The law serves us and the law helps us live into who we're called to be and who we're supposed to be. And so we're free to do what we're supposed to do. Yeah. In a sense, it's not freedom from the law. It's freedom to be able to do the law. Yes. You're actually free to do the best thing. So th this is so helpful because I think so, so much of the Bible has all these laws and we get all locked up and what do we do with it? So just to review what you said is the three uses of the law were to crush us, to civilize us. civilize us and to create us. Yes. Um, the three kinds of laws were the ceremonial, the civil, and the moral. Yeah, or creational, if you really want creational, to. Creational, if we got to stay with the seas. Alliteration. All right. And then the three responses to the law could be legalism, licentiousness, or lordship. Yep. That's great. Yeah. Very helpful. I let, that's a, 
those kinds of grids and taxonomies, they speak my language. So thank you. Well, I remember when the first time I heard each one of those and they just stuck and they landed. Yeah. And, and I've used these a ton in just pastoral counseling because sure. people are wrestling with this stuff and talking through these things really help kind of give handles because it's like, you know, there's 612 moral exhortations in the Old Testament. And you're going, those got to be categorized somehow. Sure. And so this is one of the ways I found helpful to yeah. categorize them. Yeah, well, thanks for that. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, again, if you find this show helpful, share it with somebody that you think would uh, benefit from it. Um, but we're thankful to all of you who've been listening this year and um, excited to keep uh, producing these shows into the future. Uh, Seth, thanks for your uh, energy and attention and just helping us. So Yeah, thanks great. for asking good questions. We'll see you all next year. Hey!